Hi, everybody. Welcome to Emergency Trauma Mamas podcast. And today is Tuesday. So we will talk about a trauma case. So Trauma Tuesday it is today. So let's kind of talk about, let's start with shock. So when we talk about a patient who comes into the resuscitation room and we know that they're a trauma patient, what's the first type of shock that pops into our brain? Well, lo and behold, it is hypovolemic. So to go over the different types of shock real quick, to refresh your brain because refreshers are good, and we always think of hypovolemic being the most common type of shock that we do see in our trauma patients. However, there are patients that come in that are not always textbook, and you can't pigeonhole every patient into that type of shock. You have to look at the big picture, right? So we have hypovolemic, cardiogenic, and obstructive, which is what it says it is. And then we have distributive, which remember that there's three different types of shock that fall under the distributive umbrella. So that is neurogenic, anaphylaxis, and sepsis. So it's confusing sometimes when um, you're first learning about the different types of shock because people just tend to think, oh, okay, there's only four four types of shock. But in reality, There's four different names, but then there's three different other types of shock that fall under distributive. So just remember, if you're a mnemonic person, you can make up a mnemonic like NAS, like neurogenic, anaphylaxis, and sepsis fall under distributive, however you want to do it. Um, I do a lot with mnemonics, but for me, it's just remembering the different, the four main types and then knowing um, just based on having talked about it and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, seeing it in the clinical setting that the three different types of shock that fall under distributive are neurogenic, anaphylaxis, and sepsis. So when somebody says sepsis, that's actually a type of shock, but it falls under the distributive umbrella, if that makes any sense. So remembering that, remember cardiogenic, um, of course, is a pump problem. And I I tend to think about patients who have a a huge MI, just like a really big MI that were, for whatever reason, not able to get to emergency services. They didn't activate 911 or, you know, they blew off the chest pain and they infarcted for several hours before they got to the hospital or, or a hospital that had a cath lab because we know that not every hospital is equipped with a cath lab and an interventional cardiologist and someone who can actually cath the patient. So I think of those cardiogenic patients as patients who have had a lot, a lot of damage to the heart, or maybe they just have like a really boggy heart. Um, you know, their ejection fraction is like 5 to 15%. So they have cardiomyopathy or some other issue. But I think of cardiogenic, I think of a pump problem because that's just how my brain works. And obstructive, like I mentioned, is what it says it is. So there's something that's obstructing the blood flow. For instance, you have a tension pneumo um, or hemonumo um, from trauma, whether it's a gunshot wound or any kind of blunt trauma. Um, we know that our patients can have cardiac tamponade. And so, of course, tamponade 
where the blood would be going where it's not supposed to go. They need a pericardiocentesis in order to fix that. And that would fix the obstruction, hopefully, and get them out of that type of obstructive shock. So obstructive is what it says it is. It's easier to kind of think about when you hear obstructive to picture it in your brain because it says obstructive, it is obstructive, and there's a couple different things that it could be. And then, of course, distributive with the neurogenic and um, anaphylaxis. I think people are really familiar with anaphylaxis just based on the number of kids these days that have peanut allergies. And, they, you know, everybody has their EpiPen. And then, of course, the EpiPen people decided to raise the price because they they thought, hmm, money. So I think people are really familiar with anaphylaxis. Um, just from a pathophysiological standpoint, you know, you have that massive histamine release and then you have all that, basically the bottom drops out, right? So you have that massive histamine um, release and hypersensitivity triggered by whatever it is. It could be a bee sting. It could be, you know, peanut um, allergies. It could be anything, right? And so then you have the massive histamine and adenosine release, and then you've got the constriction of the bronchioles and the pulmonary tree. So then you get, you know, that shortness of breath and wheezing because everything's just kind of closing in. And then the patient can expire if they don't get their epi in a timely manner, of course. And then, of course, sepsis, I think people are pretty familiar with that as well. You know, there is a type of um, microorganism that gets into the bloodstream. Usually we see, we try to cut it off at the past. You know, we're pretty in tune to this now. We weren't always, but, you know, when we talk about uh, systemic inflammatory response, we have SIRS criteria, right? So if a patient presents, you know, to triage in the emergency department, there's certain things that actually pop up on the screen now that you can't even get past. So if they have a temp of this, if they're tachycardic, if they're tachypneic, if, like I said, febrile, there's certain things that pop up. We cannot get past it. We have to actually go through and say yes or no. And then, of course, it clues us into, hey, uh, by the way, this patient may be septic, so you need to work them up accordingly. Even though, you know, the nurse and the doctor is going to catch it, it's just nice to have that SIRS criteria pop up because... It's basically just screening everybody. So we know we have the SIRS criteria and then they can get septic um, where they have, you know, massive vasodilatation um, based because of the microorganism that's spread out into the bloodstream, whatever that may be. And then, of course, they can go um, into MODS. So they've got multi-organ failure and then, of course, DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation. So... All those things are bad. And then um, neurogenic is usually differential diagnosis with severe trauma. Usually I think of any kind of cervical fracture or anything. I, I think neurogenic neurogenic shock. Um, I remember taking care of a patient who had um, a GSW that transected their cord around T11, T12. So this patient actually did go into neurogenic shock. Um, it's it's unusual. It's catastrophic. Um, they get super bradycardic and hypotensive, and they get real diaphoretic. And based on where the transaction of the cord is, um, that's where you can kind of see um, 
these types of symptoms when you have that kind of injury and severe trauma, um, then you're going to start to see this catastrophic nervous system response. So it is, of course, can lead to other things as well. Um, you know, DIC, that type of thing, but it's more rare if you want to be honest. You don't see it. I think I've seen in 23 plus years, maybe two or three. Um, it's just not common. So just, but think if you do see, you know, spinal SCI, you've got a spinal cord injury or any kind of trauma to the cord, start thinking, hey, let's check this patient. Think about neurogenic shock. It should at least cross your radar. So those are the different types of shock, um, excuse me, shock. And let's talk about a patient who comes in one way and looks like they should be in hypovolemic shock, but then really they end up going another direction. So this is actually um, a pre-med Kaplan type question. So and it turned out to be one that stumped a lot of students, so let's talk about it. So you're getting um, an 82-year-old man, and he's admitted status post motor vehicle crash. So status post MBC, he has severe chest and abdominal injuries. It's not delineating who, what, when, where. It doesn't go into that. Remember, this is just a test question, but to kind of think through it. His head and extremities are only minimally traumatized. Okay, so he goes to surgery, he goes to the OR for splenic rupture. After approximately eight hours, so he's probably in the SICU now, um, the nurse notes he becomes hypotensive and febrile. Um, of course, he's intubated, sedated, and ventilated because um, he had respiratory failure. Um, he rapidly is developing DIC. So, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And when I teach students or whoever's taken tests, um, test taking skills 101, I always say, read the STEM question first. For this question, it says, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And then, of course, it has anaphylaxis, cardiogenic, hypovolemic, neurogenic, or septic shock. So when I read the question first, then I'm kind of like, oh, okay, most likely, it's leading me down a critical thinking pathway. It wants me to know certain things. So then I go back and I read for content. Like, okay, you need a diagnosis for this patient. Um, some key words here, of course, hypotensive and febrile. So does that fit our hypovolemic shock patient presentation? No. Um, intubated, sedated, and ventilated because of respiratory failure, that's a separate thing because remember it says he has severe chest injuries. It's not telling us what, but throw that aside. Don't go down that rabbit hole because it's a distractor. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, DIC. What, what do you think of when you think about DIC? Well, for me, it always leads back to sepsis. So for me, there's only one right answer. And when we think about SIRS, sepsis, MODS, DIC, I think of also the lethal triad of trauma. So remember, we have hypothermia, metabolic acidosis, and coagulopathy. So all of those things can contribute, right? So you have this 82-year-old gentleman who had a traumatic injury or multiple, he's had polytrauma basically, and... Was he cold and out in the field? Well, 
maybe it happened to be, we'll just say it was winter and he had a prolonged extrication and it was negative 20 with the wind chill. So it was super cold outside. Then he came to the ER. Then he really didn't ever get warmed up. Despite using warm blood and warm blankets, he just never warmed up because nobody checked his temperature to see that he was actually hypothermic in the emergency department. And then he went to the OR for a really long surgery, right? Because he had a splenic rupture and who knows what else. It doesn't say how long the surgery was. Now, all of a sudden, eight hours later, he's hypotensive and febrile. So we're way past like Sears criteria, right? I mean, we're way, if he's already having a cascade of the clotting factors, meaning he's in disseminated intravascular coagulation, we're way past the point of return, which is bad. Very, very bad for this patient because he's 82, he's geriatric, elderly, probably got some underlying comorbidities such as cardiac disease. What can we really do to salvage at this point? Well, DIC if you guys have ever taken care of anybody with that, it's very difficult to get them back. You know, you're giving them heparin and FFP. You're giving them everything to try to just dink and dunk and stimulate something, um, some factor in the clotting cascade to activate. But by that time, by the by, by the time they get to that, you know, they're oozing from every orifice. Um, every IV site, their nose, um, the Foley, you notice blood in the Foley. Like you get to that point and the likelihood of getting this gentleman back is not good. So um, it's it's very sad. We don't want our patients to go down that road, which is why um, we're hyper vigilant when it comes to that lethal trauma triad of death. So remember, um, I just remember HAC, H-A-C, even though there's no K, but HAC. So uh, hypothermia is incredibly dangerous, right? Because if our patients get cold, then what are they not going to be able to do? They're not going to be able to clot. And if they're already bleeding and we're not, um, if, if we are giving them FFP and cryo and what have you, um, you know, ONEG, if we're giving them all these blood products and then we're not giving them anything to help them clot, um, and they're already cold, you can see where that all will lead back to an acidotic state. You know, you can try to correct their gases. This guy's on a vent, but if you weren't keen or tuned into the fact that he was been incredibly hypothermic for several hours, then you might have missed that. So again, keep that in mind, the lethal trauma triad of death, um, or just lethal triad is what some people refer to it as. But once your patient goes down that road, um, again, it's very difficult to get them back. So the right answer, of course, the correct answer would be sepsis because febrile is just kind of the key word there. So when you see those types of questions, um, when you see these types of patients and you're like, hmm, you know, he really, he, she, whomever doesn't really fit into the clinical picture of what a hypovolemic patient looks like, right? So, you know, he wasn't super tachycardic. He didn't have a blood pressure, um, you know, 70 over 30. Again, and this is in the ICU setting as well. So it's several hours later. It says actually eight hours later. So, 
always try to put yourself in the mindset of where the patient is when you're answering those types of questions. But again, if you see this in in you know in real world in real time, you know you would want to step outside of the box at some point. First of all, the patient should have a temperature in the ED in the resuscitation room. That's incredibly key. Um, we drill that down a lot because nurses do forget so much is going on and things happen and they can go to the OR without a temperature. Well, you can see where that could become a huge issue. And for this type of patient, say he's 82-year-old man and he, you know, status post MVC, he hit a pole, he was, you know, going approximately highway speeds, we'll say 55, 60, and, you know, wrapped his car around a telephone pole. Well, are we really sure that he didn't have a huge STEMI and then he crashed his car? Um, I'm sure he probably got an EKG and worked up that way um, in the trauma room prior to him, you know, being, getting his fast exam and it's positive and so on and so forth. But you got to think, hey, you know, is this, and then he could have, a, you know, a tamponade too on top of it, right? Because it said he had chest trauma. So, um, you know, he had some chest trauma and blunt chest trauma, as we know, that direct hit, you know, can cause a tamponade, so a cardiac tamponade. So it could be obstructive. It could have been cardiogenic from a STEMI. Um, all those things would be on your radar when he initially hits the door. So, and again, think about your patient's medications and comorbidities. So if this guy has a history of hypercholesterolemia and he has a history of MI and he's got like four stents and his RCA and hmm, let's see what else yeah I'm sure he's on a beta blocker right so is he really gonna come in like super tachycardic mm, no he's not so say he say he takes like metoprolol 50 migs XLBID or something of that nature remember with your geriatric patients they are not going to get super tachycardic on you if they're on a beta blocker or something that's causing that beta blockade. Remember that because, again, we learn one thing. We learn, oh, hypovolemic patients, they're super tachycardic because their compensatory mechanism says, oh, the heart says I'm going to speed up to make up for this loss of volume, right? You have the baroreceptors in your aortic arch and your carotid bodies, and they're signaling, you know, your heart rate equals what times stroke volume times what times cardiac output. So your 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 baroreceptors are saying, look, we don't have like really enough blood to, you know, get to the brain, which is super important, right? Um, and, you know, the heart's like feeling a little little short on volume as well. So what happens? Well, you start to speed up. Um, and again, that's a compensatory mechanism based on your baroreceptors that we have. Well, if you have a patient that has beta blockade, that's not going to happen. So their heart rate may be, oh, I don't know, 76, 77. And so it's easy to kind of poo-poo that heart rate, right? Because it's not jumping off the monitor at you. It's not like 125, 130s. Like it's just not that... It's really just not waving any red flags at you whatsoever. However, you do need to keep that in the back of your mind. Hey, you're not going to have a med list with these trauma patients when they roll in. So you need to think, oh, you know what? 
77 for this dude is like super tachycardic, right? Because at least for him, that's as tacky as he can get because his normal resting, he's normally in the 56, 62. He's already 77, we'll say 78 and 80 and beyond. Well, for him, that's tachycardic. So again, you have to think outside of the box for these patients and not always just think cookie cutter medicine, if you will. It's like, okay, hypovolemic, tachycardic, um, hypotensive, and that's the way they all present. Well, that's not always the case. So just keep that in mind. Put that in the back of your brain and you'll thank me later someday. So um, real quick, let's just look at another um, little case study just to kind of drill it home for you. Say you're getting a 65-year-old man with a history of hypertension, CAD, MI, and he's working on his roof on a hot sunny day. And he accidentally struck a beehive with his hammer and he fell approximately six feet uh, from the roof onto the ground. Now, it doesn't say what he fell onto, um, whether it's soft ground or grass that just was you know rained on all last night or was it a concrete platform or concrete area which was of course super hard and no give whatsoever Um, upon arrival um, medics find the patient completely unresponsive Um, they do their abcs Um, they went his gcs was less than eight so they went ahead and intubated and they go ahead and call it in while they're en route And they state that he's relatively bradycardic with a heart rate of 65 beats per minute, blood pressure 60 systolic, lung sounds are clear and equal bilat, ET tube secure. Um, Secondary survey revealed no signs of external obvious bleeding, so no massive um, hemorrhage detected, um, externally at least. They don't have a fast exam in the back of the rig. Um, They don't see any urticaria, facial swelling, and and no arrhythmias. Okay, well, that's good, right? Because what have we just ruled out? Well, remember, he had a beehive. So we're thinking, oh, my goodness, this guy could be an anaphylactic shock. Is is he going to be that hypotensive? Yeah, probably. But is he going to be bradycardic? No, not so much. Um, So at this point in time, remember, he suffered a fall and he fell. So at this point in time, what are you leaning towards when you think of shock and patient presentation? um, Based on just that information alone, what are you starting to think about? Well, uh, hopefully neurogenic came up on your radar and possibly uh, cardiogenic because as they're rolling down the road with this patient, um, medical advises, hey, Go ahead and give this guy um, a couple, two trials at least of a 300 ml isotonic crystalloid. Because remember, again, he has a cardiac history. We're not going to overload him. So go ahead and give him a couple crystalloid challenges and see if he responds. So they do that a couple times and he is just staying hypotensive. So remember, he was like 60 systolic and he's really not budging. So at this point, um, medical advises go ahead and hang a dopa drip, you know, like low dose, like 
I don't know, five mics per kilo per minute. And they do that, and he actually has a moderate improvement in his BP. His perfusion's better. His skin's a little bit warmer to touch. However, you notice, though, that he's really, even before, you know, when you tube him and everything, he was not moving all extremities at all. Um, so he was unresponsive. He's not moving, no spontaneous movement at all through throughout this whole ordeal. So again, neurogenic pops up, right? Because you're thinking this guy has an SCI for sure based on the way that he was landing, that he landed off of the roof. Um, and again, so they they continue to monitor him, check his sugar, all that. Um, do a quick 12 lead and it shows some um, inferior wall. He's basically have an inferior wall MI. And in addition to that, probably, you know, a C, C2 fracture. So... Um, interesting case, uh, bad for the patient, unfortunately, but also what I like about that is that medical, um, advise them en route, you know, don't just dump a liter of fluid into this patient, you know, just be judicious, right? Just give a couple 200 ml trials, um, see how he does. Initially, I think it was 300 ml crystalline, and then they said, okay, back off, but just give another 200 mLs and see how he does. You know, had they dumped a liter of fluid in this guy, well, he's infarcting and he's in neurogenic shock because he has a SCI. So what have we just done? Um, I don't know, pushed him towards third spacing and other issues as well. So then, you know, fluid overload for a patient who's having a STEMI is just no bueno, right? Now you got to reverse it on top of everything else. So Keep that in mind. Um, I think that's a really good case from a learning standpoint um, on what to do and what not to do and how to err on the side of caution. Just because a patient looks one way, is oh, it's a trauma patient. Yeah, okay, but could he potentially be um, in a different type of shock than you anticipate? Well, absolutely. Um, so just keep that in mind. Remember um, your March too for your trauma patients. So massive hemorrhage, airway control, respiratory support, uh, circulation, and um, avoid hypothermia at all costs. And the four types of shock um, with distributive having neurogenic anaphylaxis and sepsis under its umbrella. So thank you so much for listening. And you guys have a great day, evening, afternoon, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.